Can you remember what it was like to be eight years old? Here's an insight into the mind of an eight-year-old, courtesy of a story I wrote around about that age. <laughs> my brother helpfully dug this up during my best man speech. So here we go. Peter Brown by Danny Robinson. Why was he smiling? He was smiling because he stole 1,000 pounds from the bank. <laughs> Peter Brown said to an old lady, do you want to use this trolley? After he'd cut off the trolley legs and glued them back on with Pritt stick. <laughs> he also stole someone's swimming trunks at the swimming pool. He gave his granny a wedgie. <laughs> the end. <laughs> so, there you go. Worryingly, I've probably got more in common with my eight-year-old self than I realized. My sense of humor hasn't changed much. <laughs> but yeah, hopefully that gives you a little insight what it was like being eight. Try and bear in mind your eight-year-old self. And now, if you thought Boris Johnson has a tough job in his hands in Downing Street, it is nothing compared to what faced an eight-year-old boy named Josiah. And so throughout this Meet the Family series, we've been looking at people who are all mentioned in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. We've been looking at what we can learn from them and actually how we can understand Jesus' gospel more through his genealogy. And so following on from Hezekiah, who Raf spoke about last week, our next stop on the genealogy tour bus is the life of Josiah. So Josiah's story takes a wee bit of unpacking because there are loads of names and loads of context. And Old Testament biblical accounts like these can take quite a lot of time to get our heads round, but they are so rewarding when we do. An important thing to have in mind, and something that actually really helped me to get to grips with the book of Chronicles and preparing for this sermon, was understanding the writer's intention and style. So the writing of Chronicles has actually been described as preaching through narrative. So in relaying stories of real people's lives, the writer wants to draw our attention to the good role models so that we might emulate them, but they also warn us about their mistakes so that we can avoid making them too. So we're going to have a look at Josiah's narrative, which is found in the book of Second Chronicles in chapters 34 to 35. So I'm not going to read it all today, but I'm just going to take you on a bit of a whistle-stop tour through his life and the key things that happened. So at just eight years old, Josiah was really thrown into the deep end of a highly volatile and deeply troubled kingdom. He was made the king of Judah. And so both Josiah's father, Amon, and Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh, were kings of Judah that were notorious for being deeply evil. They had rebuilt the idolatrous places of worship that Hezekiah had destroyed. And they practiced divination. They consulted mediums. Manasseh even sacrificed his own son in a fire. They showed complete disregard for the temple of God. They installed all kinds of altars and objects of pagan worship inside God's holy temple. These kings had led Judah down a very, very dark path. And Josiah was taken over at this time where God's chosen people, God's prized possession, had reached a new low. Josiah's own father, Amon, had just been assassinated. So how could Josiah turn the tide of evil that had gripped Judah? Would he even care? How was he going to rule effectively as such a young person? And what was going to be the defining feature of his reign? Well, 
Thankfully for the people of Judah, it turned out that Josiah was a good egg. You might have seen that in the last slide. Here's what Chronicles has to say. So in 2 Chronicles 34, 2-3, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. In his twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah poles and idols. Even though he was only a child, he had the wisdom to decide to follow the good example of his ancestor, David, and turn away and reject the evil ways of Manasseh and Amon. So unlike these previous two kings, Josiah recognized from the very outset he needed God. At just 20 years old, he began to remove all of the articles of false gods and their worship. He left nothing behind ensuring that anything associated with these idols was completely destroyed and removed from his kingdom. Then, once he reached the age of 26, Josiah ordered for the temple of God to be repaired and restored to its original purpose. And as the work got underway, something amazing happened, a real turning point. Someone found the book of the law hidden inside the temple, which Judah had clearly neglected. The book of the law that was found is largely believed to be the book of Leviticus that we have today. And again, this is where we're going to pick up in 2 Chronicles 34, 18. So Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah, Shaphan, and a long list of other people. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the remnant in Israel and Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that is poured out on us because those who have gone before us have not kept the word of the Lord. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written in this book. So, As he heard, Josiah wants people to inquire for the Lord. So he sends out for a reputable prophetess whose name is Huldah to discern what God had to say. And this is what she said. This is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on this uh, this place and its people. All the curses written in the book that has been read in the presence of the king of Judah. Because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and aroused my anger by all that their hands have made, my anger will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before God when you heard what he spoke against this place and its people. And because you humbled yourself before me and tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. Now I will gather you to your ancestors and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I'm going to bring on this place and those who live there. So following this prophecy, Josiah doesn't actually wallow in self-pity, but instead he is moved to action. He calls together everybody from the land of Judah and Jerusalem and he reinstates the covenant between God and his people. And renewing the covenant meant to recommit to following God and his ways to restore the divide in the relationship that had been caused by Israel's disobedience. This covenant renewal, this relational restoration then culminates in a massive Passover celebration. 
And that is where we're going to leave Josiah's story for now. And this morning, we're going to zoom in on a key phrase at the center of Josiah's story. Josiah was commended by God because his heart was responsive and he humbled himself before God. So let's unpack how Josiah's humble and responsive heart defined his walk with God and how we can cultivate this in ourselves. So what do you think of when you think of the word humility? What springs to mind? Who do you think of as a humble person? You've, got, you've guessed it. It's Samwise Gamgee for me. What a character. Bless him, poor wee Sam. Never realized that he was the real hero. He was always looking out for Frodo, not himself. Well, my understanding of humility was always that it was kind of more in line with modesty, a sort of understatedness, kind of like a tortoise-like tentativeness. It was kind of things like a hesitancy to put yourself forward for the leading part. It was being really talented at something, but not making a big deal about it. It was winning lots of trophies, but not putting them on display. (laughs) (laughs) But as with many words like humility, there we go, the Bible challenges our understanding of it. It expands and expounds our view of it. Godly humility is actually so much more than the opposite of being proud. We see that through Josiah's life. We see it through his reaction to hearing God's word. I was absolutely struck by the way in which Chronicles used this phrase about Josiah humbling himself before God. This phrase is used very deliberately right the way through Chronicles. It runs through the book like a thread weaving through the heart of it. And it really got me thinking, what does it mean to humble ourselves? What could that look like? What we see with Josiah is that the word of God plays a pivotal role in anchoring us, in steadying our souls, correcting our course, and giving us a right view of our standing before God. Even from a young age, Josiah followed in the footsteps of his father, David. At 16, it says he began to seek God. Following in the footsteps of David implied that Josiah was wholeheartedly devoted to God and that he cherished his word. Josiah would have been reading and learning the numerous Psalms of David that spoke of the holiness and majesty of God. Psalms that spoke of a God who desired to live among his people. We read humbling verses in the Psalms such as Psalm 8, 3 to 4. When I consider your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? Words like these just make you stop in your tracks and marvel at God. That was what the worship this morning did brilliantly, was it just pointed us to the greatness of God. And wow, he cares for mankind. It's amazing. When Josiah was confronted by this lost book of the law, his view of God's holiness, God's justice, majesty and power is revealed in even sharper detail. His reaction where he tears his robes and he weeps shows that God is far greater than Josiah was even previously aware. And he humbles himself in response to the word of God that he hears. So how can we humble ourselves before God? You might have heard this well-known phrase, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's a helpful, catchy little phrase, quite clever. But I feel it's only actually really half of the picture. Perhaps something like this is a bit more accurate. 
I think we could get it on the screen as well, help us follow along. Well, so here it is. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And humility is also thinking about God more and thinking more of God. John the Baptist gave us this absolute golden nugget in John 3.30. He must increase and I must decrease. Humility is having a grounded view of ourselves and a high view of God. God is described in the Bible as being able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. God is more good than we could ever know. He is more loving than we can ever possibly understand. And his patience and forgiveness go so beyond anything we can comprehend. This side of heaven, we will only ever catch a glimpse of the glory of God. And that's exciting. It is really easy for us to lose sight of this though. This is a real battle for me personally. Sometimes I notice myself starting to get a bit puffed up, you know. I'm doing well in my own eyes or maybe in the eyes of others and I can find my thinking and actions become more self-centered. Sometimes I notice that I'm thinking it. Other times my actions reveal what I'm thinking and then other times people have to point it out in me. Pride is subtle, it's deceptive and harmful. So this is why we get this reminder from Josiah's story to humble ourselves. While still in these earthly bodies, we aren't perfect. We need to fight back against the wrong thoughts and motives. We have to take our thoughts captive to be watchful for pride in our hearts. And we've got to remind ourselves of who God is and what our identity is in Christ. This is what it means to humble ourselves. Frequently, I need to remind myself that every good and perfect gift is from above. I do not earn God's love, blessing or favour. Jesus has earned that on my behalf. I cannot be saved by my good works, but I've been saved by the perfect works of Christ. God loves me because he is a loving God, not because I deserve to be loved. God doesn't need me, but man alive do I need him. He must increase and I must decrease. This is a God worthy of our worship and praise. This is the God that we were praising and singing about this morning. And when I understand God this way around, I'm completely blown away by his character. When I'm in heaven, I'm not going to be thinking or worrying about myself. I will be astounded by the glory of God. Even this morning, I was blown away. Just how all of the contributions that came this morning, I was like, I've got nothing left to say. <laughs> we didn't communicate about that. That wasn't prearranged. But just the sovereignty of God is incredible. He just wants to love all of us. He wants to love his church and bless his church. And wow, it's amazing. And it does us so much good when we just fill our head and our heart with thoughts about Christ's perfect gospel and his faithfulness. And here's a great thought to take away with you as well. Jesus humbled himself and he did so on our behalf. Philippians 2, 3 to 11 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, 
God exalted him to the highest place and he gave him the name that is above every other name and that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Praise God for Jesus. The king of the universe was born into the world as a little baby and he came to serve us. He washed the disciples' feet. He fed crowds and crowds of people. He fixed their bodies, their minds and their souls. He doesn't use being fully God for his own advantage. He doesn't wield his authority. Instead, he gives up his life for the sake of humanity. We see true humility in the actions and motives of Jesus, the servant king. This is the approachable beauty of Christ that just draws us to him. Out of this place of humility, we see Josiah had a real soft and open heart and he was responsive to God. We're going to focus on his response to God's word and his response to sin. Humility before God means that we are ready to listen. A responsive heart is ready to be taught, it is open to correction. In another of David's Psalms, we see that God guides the humble in what is right and he teaches them his way. Now, I teach drums for a living and a lot of kids that I have taught tend to have one of two reactions. They either play as fast as they can and then they look at me in a way that says, go on then, beat that. (laughs) Or they start off pretty well. They play the correct rhythm, they keep it nice and steady for a while, then they get faster and faster and then they just make a big noise and then they look at me and go, too easy, next. But they can't see the bigger picture. They're just unaware of the depth of knowledge that there is in the subject. And actually they miss out on the process of learning. But then once in a while, you get that champion pupil and any teachers in the room can relate here. We saw there's quite a few of them. The kid just gets it. They see how much there is to learn. They understand what that knowledge can unlock for them. And they just want to soak it all up. And Josiah was that kid. He was so eager to be taught by God. In that childlike way, Josiah looked up to God and he was in awe of God. And he just wanted to learn and hear from him. But the words that God says to Josiah are not easy words for us to read. And they certainly weren't easy words for Josiah to hear. God reveals to him through the book of the law the extent and the consequence of how far Judah had strayed from God. But Josiah's response to this is admirable. Josiah takes God at his word. He doesn't start making excuses. He's not indifferent. He doesn't get defensive or offended. He hears the law and he's devastated by the fact that his people have missed out on a personal and close relationship with God that should have been theirs. Josiah lets the word of God shape and define him, not the other way around. He realigns himself and his people with the will and intentions of God. And God's word has been given this rightful and correct high place of honor in Josiah's mind and his heart and his soul. And as a result, Josiah is teachable His heart is soft, and that gives God so much room to work. There's a lot we can learn from Josiah's example here. When we come to read the words of God, we have to remember that all parts of the Bible are there for our good and for God's glory. God's word is life-giving. It is sharper than a double-edged sword. It cuts straight to the heart, and it shapes us into the likeness of Christ. The Bible is eternal. It will remain forever. So, 
we need to get our hearts and attitudes and ideas and intentions lined up correctly with what God has said in his book. And we need to leave our preconceptions behind. 2 Timothy 3.16 gives us this high view of God's word. All scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Love that phrase. All scripture, even genealogies, even bizarre tales of kings that we'll never quite understand, they're all God-breathed. They are some, there's something to be learned and gained from every part of the Bible. Even when it's tough for us to understand, even when it's tricky to see how it might be relevant, even when it's hard for us to hear, it remains God-breathed and useful for our lives. God loves to teach us and he loves to help us. And God knows that we need his help to understand the Bible. He is gracious towards us. That's one of the many reasons he has given us the Holy Spirit. We're the ones who sometimes think that we can somehow figure it all out with our brains, but we just, we need the Spirit and the Spirit is always there for us. So when we pray, Lord, help me understand this. Lord, I want to be changed. Lord, I need your voice to speak much, much louder than my own. From my experience, God is faithful to answer us. As a result of Josiah's soft-heartedness towards God and his word. He deals with sin accordingly. God's perfect and holy law had really brought to light the darkness and disgrace of God's people and land at that time. Out of an understanding and obedience to the word of God, Josiah as king set about on a mission to restore Judah to its original intention, which was to glorify God. And there are some lengthy descriptions about the extent to which Josiah removes the idols and objects of pagan worship. In fact, it takes up quite a large chunk of the story. And so we just see that the Israelites' lives and land was so cluttered with sin. Child sacrifice had become commonplace. And Josiah knew that God's holy land and temple had been defiled. But he was determined to put it right. This would be his stamp on Judah's history. And the way in which Josiah reforms Judah, Jerusalem, and the temple was extremely thorough. He went to the extent of making it impossible for them to turn back to these things by defiling them in a way that made them ceremonially unclean. So these people wouldn't go back to them, they wouldn't even touch them. And so actually for us, I feel this kind of serves as a helpful metaphor of the sanctifying work of the Spirit in our lives. Because we are now God's temple We are now his dwelling place on earth. But it's not Josiah that orders the cleanup operation. When we invite God into our lives, he sends his Holy Spirit to make the temple fit for purpose again. The Spirit purifies our hearts and minds, revealing the wrong things that have filled up the space. And this can be a painful process, as it was for the people of Judah. But ultimately, again, this process is for our good and for God's glory. So in keeping with this metaphor, we might not be king of Judah, but we kind of all have our own kingdoms. We've all got our lives and our spaces that we live. And so are we actually aware of what we let into our spaces? Are we aware of what fills our homes, our heads, and our hearts? Have we dealt with the clutter from our past? As we were hearing earlier from the words that were brought 
actually strongholds is another word for this kind of clutter and sin from our past. You know, the mess that we carry with us from our lives before we knew God, before we became Christians. And prayer is a powerful thing to free us from thought patterns and strongholds. God is faithful and he is patient towards us and he gives us the Holy Spirit who can set us free from these things. And I felt when I was preparing this as well, genuinely, if this feels like you at the moment and it feels like strongholds are weighing you down, I hugely, hugely recommend the Freedom in Christ course that's starting up very soon, just in September. It's really packed with helpful teaching about how to deal with these struggles, practical wisdom that comes straight from the Bible, but it also gives us space to be prayed for so that you can experience freedom from strongholds through the Spirit. If you want to know more about it, then Doris is here. You can chat to me. You can find someone in a connect jacket. Even today, pray with somebody in the prayer team because the Spirit loves to work. And he can work in an instant and he can work across a 10-week course. And we just, we're faith, full of faith that God can do this thing for us. Sadly, the lasting effect of Josiah's reforms across Judah were short-lived. After Josiah's death, subsequent kings turned back to the evil ways of the past. Josiah's power was limited because he could only destroy the physical representations of the sin of his people. He couldn't rid them of the sin that was in their hearts. And he was powerless to turn God's rightful anger to save Jerusalem from ruin. Josiah was aware of the problem when he said these words. He said, great is the Lord's anger that's poured out on us because those who have gone before us have not kept the word of the Lord. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written in this book. But here's the good news. God's plan for Judah, God's plan for the world didn't end with Josiah. Jesus was coming to fulfill what was written in the book of the law. Jesus was coming to defeat sin for good. And Jesus has dealt with sin in its entirety. We could reread Josiah's words in light of Jesus. And it tells us a very different story. Great is the Lord's anger that has been turned away from us because of the one who has gone before us and he has kept the word of the Lord. Jesus has acted in accordance with all that is written in this book. Josiah was able to restore the relationship between God and his people only for a short time by renewing the covenant in God's presence. But Jesus has restored the relationship between God and his people for eternity. The Old Testament points to a savior who was coming and the New Testament points to the savior that has come. We get to meet the family through the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, we're invited to join the family. This is nicely paralleled in a stark similarity to the description of how Josiah renewed the covenant and then a prophecy in the book of Jeremiah that points to how Jesus was going to, in fact, upgrade the covenant. He was going to welcome us all into his family and remove our sin from us. So in Second Chronicles, it says this. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by his pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, statutes and decrees with all his heart, all his soul and to obey the words of the covenant written in this book. Then he had everyone in Jerusalem and Benjamin pledge themselves to it. 
And here's the wonderful promise that Jeremiah 31, uh, from Jeremiah 31 that Jesus has fulfilled. And just look out for some of the phrases that just pop back up in this passage as well. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach their neighbor saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Let's follow Josiah's lead and humble ourselves before God through reading and hearing his words. Let's grasp a grounded view of ourselves and a high view of God according to his truth. Let's have a humility that leads us to further dependence and acceptance of the finished work of Christ. We can boldly approach the throne of God knowing that our hope and confidence is not in ourselves, it's not in our effort or our wavering obedience, but it's in the perfection of Jesus. We can rest in knowing that God remembers our sin no more because Jesus has dealt with it for us. Galatians 6.14, as for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified and the world's interest in me has also died. Let's have responsive hearts that give Jesus all the praise, all the glory and all the thanks that he deserves. Let's boast together about what Jesus has done. Let's not be looking inward, but upwards to our amazing God. Amen.